Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host, Anna Curtis. Hi, Anna. Hi, Hattie. It's great to see you. It's great to see you too. Welcome to the podcast. And firstly, I have to ask, are you reading anything good at the moment? I am. I'm currently reading Dreams of Joy by Lisa C. And I'm not very far into it yet, so no spoilers from the audience, please. But it's set in... 1957 where a young girl named Joy has run away from Chinatown in Los Angeles where she lives with her family to find her real father. It's very interesting. Lots of secrets seem to be unveiling themselves and Lisa C just writes fabulously. She's got such lovely descriptions of scenery and food and smells and it's just wonderful. How about you? That sounds amazing. It sounds like very twisty and turny and mysterious, which I love. I read something a bit different recently, actually. Something that... It was a graphic novel adaptation of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which was adapted and illustrated by Fred Fordham. And I'm really not usually a, a regular reader of graphic novels, but I thought it'd be a unique way to access and revisit one of the classics. And Brave New World is, I think I've probably mentioned it before, it's one of my favourites. I'm such a big fan of like sci-fi, dystopia. And it lends itself so well to a graphic novel kind of thing because it is such a visual, imaginative story. And yeah, I found it really interesting and really different. So I would recommend and I might seek out some more graphic novels and particularly adaptations of old old books as well so if the listeners have any recommendations that they could send my way that'd be amazing that sounds so interesting i think i'm going to have to look that up now anyway on today's episode we'll be hearing from two very different guests so firstly i caught up with fiona walker about her latest novel which is a romantic countryside romp country secrets which has just been released in August. We chatted about the twists and the turns of the book, her writing process, and how her devoted readers fall in love with her characters. After that, I heard from Liz, who's an area manager for Hampshire Libraries, all about the importance of children's literacy and why libraries are such vital community spaces. Even though the summer holidays are coming to a close, there's still time for your little ones to get involved in the summer reading challenge, All they have to do is read six books. If you want to find out more or sign your child up, pop into your local branch or visit the Kids Zone on our website, which we'll link in our show notes. For now, though, here's Hattie talking to Fiona Walker. Ronnie loved flying into the dusk, that sense of stealing across the sky to a faraway nighttime galaxy especially when horse trading lay ahead. Descending through the clouds over Bremen, she admired the lights glittering below, imagining they were stars, jewelled curtains welcoming her on a stellar adventure. And goodness, it was lovely to get away from home. Fat snowflakes clustered against the plane's tiny window as they landed, obscuring her view of the airport's familiar glowing expanse. She'd travelled through here routinely once, dealing sports horses around Europe, occasionally hopping home to the UK or to the US to see a client, her Mulberry Weekender thrown open on the four posters of Schloss's One Night, A Horsebox Bunks the next. That lifestyle had ended abruptly several years ago when she'd split from then-lover Henk, a globe-trotting Dutch bloodstock agent, resuming a more genteel English country life amid her old venting crowd. Her years of valet airport parking and flying business class might be behind her, but Ronnie relished getting back in Germany during peak stallion show season, the buzz in her veins again. She didn't care that she was disembarking the cheapest flight she could find, or that her budget hire car felt dull-sized amongst the night haulage traffic roaring south on Autobahn 1 as she drove through Lower Saxony. Her heart still soared when she reached the small city of Hector, unofficial capital of warm-blood breeding. This was where dynasties were formed. February was the month the big German studs showed off their elite, some of the most beautiful sires in Europe on show. Tonight's was the hottest ticket of them all, the Gestrut Fuchs Stallion Collection. Amongst the most valuable in Europe, Gestrut horses were the envy of the world, but the most breathtaking Gestrut bred horse was the one Ronnie had left behind at home in the Cotswolds, Beckstein, 
aka Bex, almost lost to the breeding world through a succession of bad deals, the former Olympic show jumper was standing at her family stud this season. His breeder, Paul Fuchs, wanted him back, and Ronnie was here to broker the deal. This evening, she was a VIP guest at Fuchs' public show, followed by a personal backstage tour to meet its stars, then dinner, and afterwards, meeting the great man himself. If she played it right, the next few hours could turn around her family's fortunes completely. So, Fiona, welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about the book for for our listeners? Yes. Well, Country Secrets is set in a fictional village in the Cotswolds called Compton Magna. The Comptons is the setting. It's known affectionately as the Bard's Worlds because it's in um, the north of the Cotswolds in in the Warwickshire bit near Stratford-upon-Avon. And it focuses mainly around um, the village stud farm, which is a very old stud farm. It's been in the same family for generations and generations, and it's sort of crumbling gently into obscurity and not making money. And it's been left in the hands of the family black sheep, if you like, Ronnie Percy. Ronnie Percy famously is is still known in the village for having run away with a jump jockey, abandoning her, her husband and her children 30 years earlier. And now she's back and she's trying to turn around the fortunes of this stud which is very old-fashioned and antiquated and still has a sort of 70-year-old stallion man who believes in in the old-school ways of, of horse breeding. So she's brought in this, this young blood called uh, Luca O'Brien, and he's known as the, the horse maker internationally. He's very well known. He's a, he's a bit of a rolling stone, Luca. And he's well reputed for calming sort of wild stallions, for bringing in modern techniques, and also for seducing lonely wives. And he targets the one woman that that Ronnie really would rather he didn't and that's her daughter Pax and Pax has just walked out of a a, a really coercive uncomfortable horrible marriage and needs someone like Luca to cheer her up but he's he's really the wrong the wrong man for her long term our rolling stone and Ronnie can see this so we have this mother-daughter dynamic and as the title suggests country secrets they all have these secrets from the past Ronnie's got one from her 30 years ago when she she ran away and Pax holds her secrets of her marriage. Luca himself has secrets that he's left from his last job in, in Canada. And then the feathers of the village are very much ruffled by the reappearance of, of a character called Kenny Kay, who I loved writing. Kenny Kay is an old school stand-up comedian from the 80s, you know, absolutely cigar smoking and incubator, unpolitically correct. Um, but he has reinvented himself as a sort of juice drinking Hollywood star, he's become um, he's become the man in America who plays the the old Cockney, if you like, um, and and now he's a clean living golf playing um, uh, sort of septuagenarian who wants to to revisit his own um, earlier years and and back in the day when Ronnie was still around, uh, Kenny was married. He's been married many times, but his first wife loved show jumpers. And back in the 80s, you won't remember this, you're much too young, but show jumpers, they were, they were the Saturday night TV. Show jumping and snooker was was big. And, and we'd all sit down to watch the silk. They were all sponsored by cigarette firms. So bad. <laughs> uh, we'd sit down and watch the, the silk cut derby with, with Harvey Smith and these with the Whitakers, and they were our pinups of the day. And Kenny was part of that era. And, and when he stood stallions at stud, in, in Compton Magna with, with Ronnie's family. And he himself has probably the biggest secret of all buried underneath that Cotswold loam. Um, but I can't give any more away because obviously the clues in the title, secrets, um, you have to read it to find out. Really going into this book, I didn't know what to expect. I was thinking, is it going to be like this fantastical country escape? And, and it and it was. But I there were some really, really, like you said, some really funny moments, some really like dark, twisty dangerous moments um and and it was a really really good fun read as you say it must have been quite good fun to write now this book is obviously part of a well it's kind of part of a wider series set in the same fictional area and this rural setting was so captivating to me for for context I live in like the biggest city in Hampshire so I'm very much alien to the to the idea of all these like different village antics and horses and all of that stuff I found it really captivating but what about that kind of country living draws you in to write about well 
I live it so that that helps. I sort of write what's around me. I I love the characters. There's something very old fashioned is the wrong word, but but nowadays we live in. Obviously, I, I'm an analog born woman, and I started writing in the 90s, which was the analog world. And it's quite difficult. And you will notice in the book that I am, although I use phones and messaging and all that, there is a lovely quality in country life that we are not quite so digitized. And that means the character comes out of of people much more quickly, especially when you're writing fiction. Because we don't see each other routinely either, we don't spend hours ignoring each other on public transport or trying to avoid our neighbours. My neighbour's three fields away, so if I see them, I'm really excited and we (laughs) stop and we talk. And I love to sort of capture that on the page, that and just that wonderful clarity of this this amazing countryside we live amongst. And again, we tend to ignore it. We sit on trains and just flick our way through pages upon pages of social media without looking out of the window and going, wow, look at that. So I, I think it's sort of part of my duty as a writer to look out of the window for people and, and go, just stop for a minute, just stop for one sentence, one paragraph and go, gosh, that's there. And and it's sort of, it, it's like all things. I mean, I love reading books about worlds I don't know. I love learning things from books. But I also like to be reminded who I am and where I am and of the right here, right now of of life. It's just all around. If I see something, I want to write it down. And I'm very lucky to have it outside my window. So I share it as much as possible. Well, I was going to ask, is Compton Magna the kind of place that you would like to live with all its gossiping and all its kind of inner circle, outer circle stuff? Yes and no. I mean, I have lived in Compton Magnas. Um, I lived in the Cotswolds. I, I now live just outside. I live further north in Warwickshire, but I have lived in the Cotswolds. And the trouble is, I did tend to put every single one of my neighbours into books, which <laughs> is a bit naughty. <laughs> I did change them. I changed their sex. I sometimes make them dogs or horses, but they all got in there. And it gets, yes, I felt like I had to be ostracised from the village and go and uh, everywhere I go, I steal people, I suppose. The difficulty is you can't choose your neighbours. So there's always points, which I put into the book, there are people that you can't stand in villages or that can't stand each other or that get very wound up. And one of the the bits I had great fun with in the book is it's a very sort of Vicar of Dibley moment that the the church, the village church, has had its lead stolen from its roof, which is surprisingly common. And it's collapsed and they it's revealed Death Watch Beetle. And, and in order to finance the repair, the church has decided to sell this piece of land, which the village sees as common land, but they don't want it sold. Or there's a certain faction in the village, and it really divides me. I wanted to do this village hall meeting, where the sort of building tension between the the grandees of the village, who who have this sense of entitlement, this sense of we've always been here, and what we say is law, and the law is up, and and those who perhaps the weekenders who don't feel quite as like like they belong, and then sort of younger, newer incomers who want to be heard and, and that that sense of of small communities when they start to bubble my goodness they bubble a lot and writing all these characters I mean you included a uh, dramatis personae at the start of the book which is very very helpful because there are so many characters and animal names and all of these things so did you ever during the writing process lose track of any of those characters at any point I think I, I do and I do. This is my 21st book, 20th book. And they all have, with a couple of exceptions, they have big casts. I consider it to be sort of the archers on steroids. You know, I like it to be a whole world. Um, and it's, to me, uh, I love big books. I love books with lots of characters. I love Dickens. I love Julie Cooper. I love anything where I can really have that whole cast. And it feels like going into a soap opera or a a really all immersive succession like box set of a series. So I I tend to keep fairly detailed track of who's who. And I've got them so clearly in my head as I get older, like I said, it's the 20th book. So when I was 23 in writing, I was sharper, should we say, in terms of remembering everybody. And particularly when you're writing, this is, as you say, the third book in a series. And although each book stands alone, you don't have to have read the others at all. A lot of my very loyal readers who've been with me for 30 odd years, they have read the other two books possibly several times and they will really get at me if I accidentally change a name or forget someone's eye colour or or leave a dog out that was intrinsic to a previous one. So, uh, yeah, I, I have to be quite careful with my notes and my 
continuity checking. I'm imagining a pin board with little uh, string connections to all the different characters. Yeah, I don't. I I often get out a big whiteboard, or I have a board with post-it notes. But then I I sort of move on, and I'll I'll have bits of paper all around me. It just gets completely confusing. So I have to amalgamate these great piles of notes every so often. So, I mean, moving into that, actually, what is your kind of, as you say, you've written a huge, huge catalogue of work. So what is your writing process like? Like, Was it different for this book at all? Or does it normally follow a similar kind of pattern? Yeah, organised chaos. Definitely. (laughs) I really envy. I listen to, I listen to podcasts quite a lot, talking talking to authors and and having met many authors over the years, I, I am wildly awestruck and impressed by authors that I call them, uh, this isn't meant to be derogatory, but I call them postman authors that get up really early and have clocked off by lunchtime. I'm all immersive. I write like I read, which it is awful for my family. It was brilliant when I started because it was just me. And I would literally, I would just say, right, I'm writing a novel. And for three months, you wouldn't see me. I would I'd be sort of night and day in a room like the mad Um creative crossed with a sort of bonkers scientist bubbling away with this book and now I'm a mother to two teenagers and I've got a partner and I've got commitments it's really awful on them because I still want to lock myself in a room for three months and I do as close as I can to approximating that which does often mean I work overnight or I appear for meals looking completely bonkers with with a um, pencil through my hair and baggy eyes and um all I want to talk about is the book which is incredibly boring when you're a teenage girl and you want to just talk about you know, actually they're, they're quite politicized and interesting my children and they want to talk about all sotts of things and I'm I'm stuck in this village in the Cotswolds in my imagination so yeah I, I write probably the same as my 20 something year old self wrote which is awful because it's it's more like I'm writing a thesis or an essay or a, um, a deadline at, at university or school than it is that that wonderful disciplined professional approach and actually I have tried to change it and when I try to change it I I don't write as well and I know that I need to suspend my own disbelief in order to 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 gift that on to my readers if if that makes sense yeah yeah it definitely does and I, I think you know that that's probably part of the excitement is that immersive experience because it I think the the book is very good at positioning you in that community and really the visuals of what's going on are very clear. So although it does sound exhausting, the outcome is obviously, it is definitely working. It's fun though. And and people don't talk, writers don't talk enough about how fun writing can be. It's such a, it's such a lovely job to do when it's going well. It can be absolutely awful when you, you're beating yourself up because you can't make it work. Because I often write myself into corners almost deliberately because you want to take the reader somewhere where they go, how on earth can you get out of this? But the difficulty is I've written myself there and I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. So I have days where I go, oh, God, I don't know. What what am I going to do? But then when you do explode that out and you do find a way out, it is just what it's like solving a a massive puzzle. It's like the locked room thing. I think of myself as locking myself in a room and then having to follow the clues to get out again. And um, that's the good bit. That, That sounds like incredible fun, actually. And so when you talk about immersing yourself in it and writing yourself into corners does this mean that when you set out to you know you've got country secrets is coming out do you know at the beginning of the writing process exactly where everything is going to go do you know broadly did you know what all the secrets were going to be before you started no because it wasn't called country it was called country air oh (laughs) I, i usually have a different working title it's almost inevitably changed um uh, that's because nowadays everything works on algorithms and search terms and tags. And so I let, I leave that up to the experts. And I just, I start out with a, I usually give a proposal to my editorial team and my agent and say, this is what I'm going to write. And they go, marvellous, brilliant, off you go. And then I write in that direction and veer off sideways and head somewhere else completely. And it is very frustrating. And I try and keep them updated. Oh, it's changed a bit. Because the big, the big twist in country secrets probably came to me about two thirds of the way through the book where I suddenly saw how two two characters could be connected who and this hadn't been in my proposal at all and I thought my goodness wouldn't that be fun that would make so much sense of of all of this and originally two other characters were supposed to skip off into the sunset together at the very end 
And the more I read, the more I thought, God, I, I just think they would make each other really miserable and, and that's not going to work. And I've learned from experience because my very first novel back in the 90s, which was called French Relations, and it had my heroine having to choose between two gorgeous guys and um, it was total wish fulfillment. She was me and I basically pretty <laughs> men up. Um, and she chose the nice one. She chose the soulful, emotionally connected somewhat self-obsessed creative one and the number of letters I had afterwards say no she should have chosen the other one who is the sort of sexy roguish difficult arrogant one but who had this tremendous sort of Mr Darcy sense of loyalty and truthfulness about him so I had to write a sequel I wrote a whole other book where she got off with the other one and now I tend to check myself more as I write and think who really would they be happy with I was going to ask have you ever taken a fan's suggestion on board and, and run with it? But it sounds like book, book two was uh, was exactly that. Yes, it was book three because I'd written a book two. <laughs> I'd written another book which was completely unrelated and then I went back to these characters. And that also gave me the idea, which I have taken a lot from readers, that while I don't always write straight sequels to anything, I will, and, and in fact, these last three books are the closest I've got to three books that are interconnected. I often set them in the same world or I put, characters from one book into the background of another book. So I like to feel it's a whole 360 world and to reward readers who really love the books. And there are those who, who are, are so brilliant at sort of keeping me going and motivated saying, when's your next one out? And when do you when are you going to bring back so-and-so? I like to walk these characters in and out of each other's landscapes. But I still, 30 years on, and I have written three books with these characters where she chose the wrong chap in the first book, they're Tash and Hugo, they're called. She's the right one in the second book. And then I wrote a sequel years later where they appeared in amongst, as I said, in amongst a series of other books I'd written. They appeared in the last of those. And I'm still getting requests to bring them back again. <laughs> and they're, they're like, they'd be in their 50s. I keep aging them down a bit. I'll <laughs> take a few years off each time I reappear them. But yeah, they'd be in their 50s now. And I'm not, but they've got teenage children. So there's not a lot you can do in terms of that, that, big romantic the classical and this is the difficulty romantic fiction has got its tropes and its its limitations whenever I try and push which I often do try and push that that bar a little bit you get reined back and an editor will politely say no really could you make her 30 or even 25 not 50 things like that but I was going to say one of the things that was really nice about this was this kind of intergenerational storyline and you you do see people in their 70s and and people in their later years being represented as being romantic and sexual and things like that. And that's a really nice thing for, for this genre as well. So one of the things I wanted to ask specifically about writing romance is how do you identify or how do you generate that such good on-page chemistry between two characters? Um, that's wish fulfillment, <laughs> my imaginary conversations. I, I love dialogue. I, I um did a back in my ancient analog youth, I did a degree in drama and theatre arts. So dialogue is always really front in my mind when I write a book. And I, I find it moves things on and it creates that dynamic. And I, I can be very guilty of, as I say, I love Dickens, so I'm very guilty of, of, of telling, not showing sometimes and, and getting very excited by my descriptions of things, which is part of the immersive quality. But you really have to keep pace, especially when you write big books. And dialogue is incredible for creating pace and rhythm and engagement. I'm a great observer. I listen all the time. I, I naughtily jot bits of dialogue down when I hear people having those conversations that I love writing. And I do hear it very clearly in my mind and I probably do act it. So it's all it's back to wish fulfillment. I'm just a, you know, a middle-aged woman who thinks she's a little girl in a princess dress playing the part. So and that's again back to the joy of writing is is having these conversations in your head and they feel they become more and more real it's going back to them as well that's the other thing is I wish I wrote them straight off like that but often I'll write a conversation that's sort of veering in the right direction but because I've got it on the page I can then go back and edit it and and so much of the of the work is in editing and I always say this to people who want to write I say, don't panic. Just don't think you have to make it perfect. Get it down on the page and then go back because that's where the magic happens. You've kind of mentioned Dickens, you've mentioned Jilly Cooper and romance fiction. Are these the kind of 
uh, books you like to read? Are there other, you know, are you a voracious reader of anything and everything or? or... I, I am. I'm back of a cereal packet reader. I, I used to, whenever we went on holiday, I would run out of books to read pre-Kindle days and I'd read all the books that they leave in these sort of holiday homes. So I've read all sorts of, I mean, things I would never imagine myself reading, like a biography of Churchill or, or a pile of Mills and Boons and nothing is wasted on me. And I, I found, find incredible joy in books I don't expect to enjoy. And I have books all over the house and I use my local library a lot. I use Borrow Books. I love it. I'm, I'm forever downloading books because, and then, then I'll often go out and buy them and give them to people. <laughs> my early reading was massively influential. I was really lucky, I think, because I look at my daughters who are reading the uh, forgive me, but the dead white male curricula at, at um at school. So it's um of my cement Steinbeck and it's um Jacqueline Hyde and it it's very dry and they're doing poetry which is based around wartime and conflict. And I did romantic poetry and I read Wuthering Heights and Pride and Prejudice. So I think I got a very good grounding. I also stole books off my parents' shelves endlessly. So I was the 13-year-old reading Beryl Bainbridge when all my friends were reading Jackie Collins, but then I read the Jackie Collins too. So, And I still do. So I've just finished, thanks to my local library, the latest Robert Galbraith, the enormous, enormous one. And so I will, and I love that because, again, like I say, big books. It kept me going. It, when you're in a book and you've reached that point where it weighs the same in both your hands, that's where I'm happy because I'm I am in, and I know where I'm going, and I know I look forward to the moment where if I read in bed or wherever, I look forward to that moment. It is amazing, isn't it? And you, and you've mentioned that um, your love for libraries, which is obviously. A, a joy for us at Hampshire Libraries to hear that. But I guess more widely, do you have any other comments on what the significance of libraries are to you? Oh, absolutely. My local library is now Ulster Library, which is in Warwickshire, and it also has a little museum in it. And it is, it's a hub. It's just, it, it, my kids love it. When I grew up in my local library, <laughs> quite ironic, I went and stayed in it as an Airbnb not long ago because it is now an Airbnb. It's Newbury Library, the old Newbury Library, you can actually go and stay in. And I, that was my, that was my Narnia as a child. I went there after school. I read every pony book that library had. They kept having to order them in and I had to reread them. And I'd recognise my stamps. I was like, oh, that was me. That was when I read it last year. I adored it. I adored the library. And um, I, I particularly loved, there was a writer called K.M. Payton who wrote a series called Flambarts, which older listeners probably recognize it was just I loved everything she wrote and I ran out of all the books in the children's section and then I discovered to my great excitement in my early it was probably I was still at junior school, at primary school I discovered there was one in the adult section so we borrowed this and it was really the most inappropriate book for a child but um yeah I'd like to thank her for for introducing me to things before even Jackie Collins and Shirley Conran did so yeah, the library is just sort of the lifeblood of a community and a community of readers and bookworms. And I always encourage people to go. And that's why I still use my library really regularly. Like I say, BorrowBox Online got me through the lockdown. It was just heaven. Yeah, when we kind of moved to that, people obviously borrowing books online a lot more. But BorrowBox was such a haven for so many readers. I use it all the time. It's it's such a, such a great little, little thing. And yeah, just amazing that you can instantaneously have a free book in your hand yes and listen to as well because of the the audio books are brilliant um and I also realized that you can you can I never realized you could book books online for physical books for the library that was another thing that came as a surprise to me hence I, I now for the real bestsellers that you can't get your hands on and that aren't on borrow box I now book them in and I get this notification I've completely forgotten sort of six weeks later saying your book is ready to read it's lovely great treat well I imagine that the same joy you feel there people will be feeling everywhere for for this when it comes out so with, with that being said what's kind of next on the horizon for you this one's coming out in August mm-hmm oh it's a good question and um not one I can answer very easily. I've come up with so many different book ideas. I have written something, but it's still out there being considered. A couple of years ago, I wrote under a different name, just a completely different book. Um, it wasn't completely different. My voice is very distinctive. I, I sound, I'm like Penelope Keith. I sound the same in everything I do. But it was a book 
that was first person and was much more anecdotal and much more modern. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I really it, it it took me somewhere else, and it's it sort of broke my my pattern. And I could, you can get a bit self indulgent, and you can and I really worry about repeating myself in these books. So I would love to write another great big romp, and that is definitely going to happen because that's what I do. But I'd like to feel I've got another string to my bow and something else I can do regularly to sort of keep things fresh and and also something a bit shorter would be nice because they do take a lot of work and the shorter ones they just they just pep you up a bit it's like going for a you know a short walk when you're used to running marathons it's it's refreshing and different well i look forward to to seeing that whatever form it takes that'll be really exciting is there no uh, more anything in the country set the compton magna area the comptons at the moment the comptons are out there i like to think they're just ticking on i may go back i may take characters from other books and pop them there because that would be interesting um I know I don't want to leave I felt very sad actually in a way because this is the last contracted book of those at the moment and it is awful because you think oh god I want to go back here I, I will really it's so vivid to me and I will really miss it and I know readers will and as I say I've had I've had the most lovely kind of responses going when when can we go but when have you written another one so it would be awful to say never but it's like those early characters as I say I still get letters say can you bring back Tash and Hugo and I always say yes and I, um, I'm going to have to live to 100 because I've got so many different books I want to write um, so maybe who knows you hear it here first maybe I'll put Tash and Hugo in the Comptons that would be quite good love your library exclusive here we go <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you and thank you so much for joining me it's a pleasure to be here thank you I thought Fiona was such good fun to speak to and it was so nice to hear her talking about how much she loves to use her library. Yeah, it was so interesting to listen to. I really enjoyed that. And if listening to the interview has inspired you to reserve a book online, you can do that via the library catalogue and we'll pop a link in our show notes. Moving on now, though, to the second part of this episode. Here's my chat with Liz. Hi, Liz. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So can you tell me what exactly your role is within Hampshire Libraries? Yeah, sure. So I'm an area manager. So I work on the operational side of public libraries. So I manage a team who, and between us, we manage libraries in the east of the county. So we have nine libraries in the east. And as I say, I work with a team of library managers who are based in the libraries. And then, of course, we have the teams who do the day-to-day, face-to-face running of the library. So, And then I have some sort of strategic responsibilities as well around literacy and reading, and particularly with a bit of a slant towards sort of the children's side. Oh, so that means you must be pretty involved in the summer reading challenge then. So what kind of things do you end up doing for that? So I'm kind of instrumental really in the planning of the Summer Reading Challenge. I've been doing that for a very long time. My background when I came to Hampshire was as a children's librarian. And so I've always kept that sort of interest in children's literature and children's literacy. So I've been involved in the Summer Reading Challenge right from the start. But now it's more this kind of strategic role. So I work with our marketing team and I work with the library team managers. And we have Summer Reading Challenge champions who are library team assistants. They then work with lots of volunteers as well. So it's that whole kind of coordination right from buying all the resources to deciding how we promote it. It's grown and grown really over the years. Yeah, that sounds like there's a lot to keep you busy there. So can you tell me what the aims of the Summer Reading Challenge are? Yeah, so the Summer Reading Challenge, it's a national scheme. It's managed by the Reading Agency. And also there were various sort of previous predecessor sort of organisations. And the main aim is it's all about reading for pleasure. So we hear a lot about children learning to read and how children learn to read and the different methods. But this is really about about reading for pleasure, about enjoyment, just the sheer enjoyment of getting reading a story. And then it's also about sort of developing that library habits so that 
come into the library regularly. And then the other part of it is the bit that we really promote to schools is that the Summer Reading Challenge really helps children over the summer holidays to maintain their reading levels because there's a a recognised dip in reading levels over the summer because children are not in a structured, you know, they're obviously having a lovely time not having to go to school. And, and But they don't have that sort of structured day. And sometimes that means that they don't get to have that time to read together. So it's about, it's about you know, trying to maintain that as well. Mm, so obviously children's literacy is so important. And could you tell me a little bit more about why that is? Well, I think the thing with literacy, you know, people focus very much on the that functional reading that you know we all we all need to be able to read and you need you do need to be able to read to just carry out normal everyday tasks but it's more it's it's about more than that really so you know reading enables understanding it enables children particularly to learn about other people and about other situations it enables children to be more articulate so if they've read a story where someone is unhappy or angry then if they feel like that they're able to articulate that better so therefore that helps them with their communication it helps them with their behavior because they're not so frustrated because they know the words to use and and how to put that across and it's really about building empathy if children build that kind of empathy empathy skills so that they start to understand how other people feel and what other people might be going through then it just helps them interact with other children and adults for that matter. You know, it's a skill that we all need and reading is a real sort of building block of that. So that's, you know, for me, <laughs> that's one of the main the main things. And the reading agency themselves, they have one of their strap lines, you know, when they're talking about reading is because everything changes when we read because it just, you know, it, it's that understanding Oh, that's such a good line. It is. And, it, you know, able to see someone else's point of view, enabling people to look outwards more than just inwards. So, yeah, I think that's really, really important. And it, I mean, it, it feeds into just children who read and do well with reading do better as they progress through life as well. You know, we, we start really young in the libraries. It's part of our vision is reading for pleasure with a particular focus on preschool children. We've been doing a lot of work around speech and language. It helps, you know, parents. Uh, it helps with bonding with babies. You know, we do rhyme times and just that repetitive singing to children. And it builds their vocabulary. And again, it, it's all of that communication. It's just so important. Mm, I read recently that reading for pleasure, I believe, has more of an impact on a child's educational attainment than their parents' socioeconomic background, which was so interesting to me. It's it's really, it's very powerful. And, you know, one of the things that we've been really trying to do is reach out to communities where people feel in, can feel quite intimidated about a library because they feel it's not for them or they don't read themselves very much or they don't read very well. But we're trying to kind of reach out and, you know, say, hey, come and have a look. It's not how you think it used to be. It's not like it used to be. We're open. Lots of things are happening. It's free. It's warm. You know, you can spend time here. So it's a work in progress, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you've touched on it quite a bit already, actually. But what is it about reading for pleasure that's so important? There's all all of those things, really, that I've said. There's the sort of functional side, obviously. But there's that learning about other people and other situations. You know, we have a list. It's called When a Book Might Help. It's on our website. And so if a parent is going into a new situation or if something quite traumatic has happened in the family, or, you know, or even a child starting school or going to the dentist, to read about it first, it helps children understand. And it's that understanding because all of us feel a bit threatened or anxious if we don't know what situation is going to be. If we're going to a new place, you know, well, where do you, you know, where do I hang my coat? Where do I, where do I go and sit down? So being able to talk about it with a book, it just opens it up and then you can draw out what those, you know, those fears are, really. It opens up the world, really. You know, you can escape as well if you're feeling anxious or upset. You know, I have certain books that I go back to because I can read them easily. They're not stressful because I know what's going to happen. <laughs> and I think that's why children like the same book over and over. Because they know what's going to happen. It's reassuring. 
I'm absolutely the same as an adult reader. I love going yeah. back to the same books every summer. Yeah. I've got my like, yeah. summer reading list. <laughs> yeah. So moving on, can you tell me what Hampshire libraries are doing to encourage people to take part in the summer reading challenge? We have a big campaign. It's it's one of our, we you know, we say it's one of our biggest kind of marketing campaigns, really. So we do a lot of stuff on social media. Libraries have their own social media pages, so they post specific things to their libraries so children can see what's happening in their library and they can see the people who are going to be there. We also visit a lot of schools. So in that summer term, we get in touch with schools and we go in and we do assemblies. So staff go in and tell the children all about it and get them really excited. And then obviously we, you know, we leave material for them so that they go home and then hopefully they pester their parents to bring them. (laughs) And also we work with, we work with partners as well. So we work with a lot of the summer scheme partners so the schemes that are funded by the um, holiday activity and food program we're working with a lot of them to enable the children in those schemes to do some reading challenge or to get them to come in and do it and then we've also got a link on our website so children can join you know via the website so we we try to shout about it a lot and this year has been great. We've had lots and lots of engagement. And then we also have, a, we recruit lots and lots of volunteers who help us. And they're there ready and waiting to, you know, talk to children about their books and ask them, you know, what they like the best and, and then give out their stickers and certificates and everything, medals. So, yeah, it's great. That sounds really fun. And it has such a lasting impact, doesn't it? I still remember getting my medals as a child <laughs> and being like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we have and we have some volunteers who did summer reading challenge as children, and children do it year after year and collect their medals. But you know, we've got some some young volunteers who are now too old to do summer reading challenge, and so they're coming and volunteering for us, and that's great. It obviously had an impact on them, and they're wanting to share that excitement with you know younger children. So it's a, a lovely complete circle. That is brilliant. What are Hampshire libraries doing to support children while they're taking part in the challenge? So we have lots of activities that we've organised during the summer. I mean, obviously, we've got libraries, you know, we've got 40 libraries. So we've got libraries all over the place, open lots of hours. And we've got lots of free activities. So we have craft drop-in sessions because it's Ready, Set, Read, have a kind of sporty theme. I've been to libraries where they've been playing games as well as all the sort of craft and story times. And then we've also had some funding. So we've had some paid performers come in and run, you know, active storytelling and all sorts of things. And most of them are free. So it's all on our, our website. So it's just always enticing people to come in, you know, especially if it's a wet day and you can't do what you plan to do, then, you know, come to the library. There'll be something on and you can do summer reading challenge. You can read a few books. Uh, you can, you know, make and take. And then that's a nice, you know, morning's worth of free activities to do, really. It's really nice that it goes beyond just reading. There's so much more to it. It comes through so clearly in what you've been saying anyway. But what do you find rewarding about working on the Summer Reading Challenge? I kind of feel that it's like my life's work. (laughs) I've been involved for such a long time and it's been really good to see how it develops. You know, so when we very first started it in Hampshire, we didn't have all of the libraries doing it because we wanted to kind of try it out and see. And then over the years, it kind of built and built and now we do it everywhere it still has that power to excite children. It's a really simple concept. You know, read six books, get some stickers for each book that you read, and then get a certificate and a medal. And for some children, that's easy, easy to do. And they love doing it really quickly, and they come in and they get their medals, and it's great. But other children, that'll be quite a challenge for them. And we we say you can read anything. So it's not like you've got to read a book at a certain level. You don't even have to read a book. You can share it with someone or you can listen to something. So it's really accessible. And I just think we get such great feedback from families. And for us in libraries, obviously, we want to we want to encourage children to have those really positive experiences. Because when they get older, you know, there may be years when they drift away because life gets really busy, but they might have their own kids, then they'll bring their children in. And, you know, it's 
I don't know. It just still really excites me. <laughs> um, which I, I think it, it's just because you're always dealing with new children, new families. And we have families who do it year after year. So it's a really simple concept, but it's still working. Mm, and I guess the kids must be so excited every year to get stuck into like six different new worlds to them. Exactly. And there's nothing like going and doing a school assembly and saying at the end of it, now who's going to come in? And there's all these hands that go up and you think, oh, they've listened. <laughs> They're excited. And that's that's kind of what we want, really. That's what, you know, you want people to. It, it's an achievement, but it's it's an achievable achievement, if you see what I mean. Yeah, for sure. So, Yeah. Yeah, I still I still enjoy it. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> so throughout the rest of the year, what else are Hampshire Libraries doing to support children's literacy? Well, throughout the year, I mean, one of our sort of core services, really core offers, you know, I mentioned it earlier, are is baby rhyme time and toddler time and story time. We run those throughout the year. We really want to capture children as early as possible, encourage parents to come in, even, you know, when they're babes in arms, really. And I've got friends who've sort of said to me, oh, but I don't know any rhymes. I I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know the words or anything. And I've just said, well, just come along. You'll soon pick it up. We've got words for you to, to read off the screen or whatever. And then to watch the children come from babies and develop and be excited again about coming to the library and joining in at a really, really young age. So we've done a lot of work with our colleagues in the early years team around speech and language because it's so important for communication. So we, we do that on a really regular basis. We do some more targeted work with other groups, you know, where there might be a speech and language delay with children. So whilst they might be waiting for a referral to some more specialist help, if they come to the round times, then actually they find sometimes, you know, that can really help children with their speech and language. And then as, as children get older, you know, we always have holiday activities on in all the school holidays. We have sessions, chatterbook sessions for slightly sort of primary age children. So talking about their favourite books and favourite authors and things. We have class visits. So we work with schools and they bring whole classes down and they all join the library and take books out and have a lovely time. <laughs> and then also, we, you know, we, we also try and work with parents as well. So we have a team who put on learning courses and things. So it might be something like paediatric first aid or it might be, you know, getting your child ready for school. We're trying to kind of promote the whole school readiness theme at the moment because I think parents often think it's like the term before they start school. Well, actually, it's much earlier than that, getting children used to sitting in a group, joining in with an activity, all of those things. It all builds into getting children to that stage. There's lots that we do and we're always looking to work with partners trying to reach those harder to reach communities and getting people involved and just breaking down the barriers about about what the library is so that people are comfortable to come and you know feel welcomed and don't worry if the children are running about and putting books all throwing books all over the place and looking at see if they're looking at them if if you've got a a messy children's library then actually that's a good day because it means people have been in and using it oh my gosh i love that what a good measure of how the library is being used So just moving away from children's literacy, some people might still find libraries a bit of an overwhelming place, especially if they're not too sure where to begin. What would you say that libraries are like now compared to the reputation they might have? I think libraries have changed ever such a long. You know, I I have worked in libraries for a long time and it's really different. The first library that I worked in compared to, you know, the libraries that we have now. And I think it's, you know, libraries pride themselves on being a safe place, a a very neutral, non-judgmental space. We're open to everyone. You know, we're open all day. You can come in for the whole day. You don't have to speak to anybody if you don't want to, but we've got nice, you know, comfortable spaces to sit. Obviously, there's the whole book thing, but we have lots of other form. You know, we've got magazines, we've got spoken word, We've got a whole digital library, which has books that you can download for free, audio books you can download for free, magazines that you can look at, as, as well as other 
you know, like Witch magazine and, you know, other online kind of resources that we've got, Ancestry, all of that. And then the library, you know, we also, we run lots of groups. So we have lots of people who just meet in the library. They say, can we come and use your space? So we have, you know, knitting groups. We've done some really positive work around supporting people with bereavement. So we have partners who come in and we have quite informal chats sort of groups to support one another. And then we have just social chat about groups. And I think especially in the winter, you know, libraries are open, they're light and they're warm. So come in and just have a look. Don't worry that you're going to be pounced on and have you, are you a member? Because anybody can come in. And of course, we've got free computers to use, free Wi-Fi. We've got printing. There's a lot of things that we can help people with. We're an information resource as well. So if people don't know where to go, just come to the library and ask. Because even if we don't know the answer, we might be able to find out who will know the answer and signpost people. So, yeah, put away those assumptions of scary staff, <laughs> austere buildings, and, and just come and have a look. <laughs> you know, everybody's welcome. Yeah, I was, I've got to say, I was so surprised. Recently, I was working out of my local library, and at the table next to mine, there was this probably secondary school aged boy getting tutored in the library. And I was just pleasantly surprised. I'd never come across that before. And it was just really lovely to see. Yeah, because I think we're uh, we're not, it's not like going in, although we are obviously run by Hampshire County Council, we're not like a council building where you would go in because, you know, you needed help with your housing or, you know, we're not sort of the same official looking, I think. And I still think people sometimes are a bit intimidated by, you know, what the front of your library might look like. But once they get in, I know we had a visit from the chief exec and she made the comments that some of our libraries do look quite grim from the outside. They're big 1970s sort structures. <laughs> but then you get through the door and it's all kind of quite bright and light and modern. And it just shows you just need to make that step. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good to remember that libraries are so welcoming and comforting places. Yeah. And we have lots of partners now who work out of our buildings, such as Citizens Advice, Health Visitors. We even have the bank in a few places. So <laughs> that is surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was so interesting to hear. Thank you, Liz, for joining us today. And hopefully we'll see you again soon. Yes. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. I really enjoyed chatting to Liz. I thought her passion for the summer reading challenge and just for children's literacy in general was so good to hear. Yeah, we've had Liz on the podcast before and she's always such a great person to speak to. Her passion for children's literacy is so prominent and comes through so well. So it's great to have her joining us. But for now, that's about all we've got time for today. Thank you to Fiona and Liz for joining us and thank you for listening. I'm Hattie Dulac. And I'm Anna Curtis.